Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And a warning that there will be audio images of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples that have died today. It's approximately 4.01 and first up on the show we're going to be speaking with Bo Spiram who is a First Nations radio host and podcaster and he's from Queensland and I'm going to actually ask him to speak about what mobs he's from. And then yeah, we're going to be speaking with Bo about the frontier wars which refer to conflicts between Europeans and Aboriginal people including battles, acts of resistance and open massacres from 1788 to the 1930s. And we'll be speaking with him about quite a few warriors and and acts of resistance, and we'll speak about that shortly. After that, we're going to be speaking with Josephine Lambini, who's the senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, and we'll be speaking with her about the depth of Australia's coercive refugees family separation policy which is revealed in a new report written by the Human Rights Law Centre. But coming up now, we're going to be speaking with Bo about the many, many interviews and research, much research that he has done in regards to the frontier wars, which have not been recorded in history at all and in the books. And a lot of school children, I believe, have been robbed of this history. It's absolutely deplorable that as part of this ongoing genocidal inaction that has been happening with Aboriginal people over the years, that the frontier wars have been deliberately excluded and there's been so much romanticising of Indigenous people over the years. And um, now we welcome Bo. Hello, Bo. Welcome to the program. How you going? Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Now, first of all, Bo, would you mind just talking about what, what land you're from? Yeah, definitely, for sure. Uh, so I'm uh, Gumaroi, Kuma and Marawari. Uh, those like my tribes are situated uh, northern New South Wales and southern Queensland. I was born on, I believe, it's Darug country in Blacktown uh, in western Sydney. Uh, but I've, since I was seven years old, I've been on Yagara country uh, on the south side of Brisbane. Um, and that's where I, I reside uh, today as well. Thank you so much, Bo. Now, I'm wondering if you could just talk about this very, very neglected past of, like, part of history, isn't it? Can mm-hmm. you talk about the frontier wars and what they are, 
and why is it that they haven't been recognised? Definitely. So the Frontier Wars are defined as uh, events occurring, uh, and, and in particular to Australia, uh, from, I guess, European settlement in uh, 1788 up to the 1930s. Uh, these are land battles that were fought uh, between Aboriginal and European uh, settlers um, in many parts of Australia. So as far south as Tasmania, to as far north as North Queensland, to as far west as, you know, Western Australia, you know, uh, wherever there now today is sort of Europe, European or Australian settlement, um, I, I dare say that there would have been a conflict uh, between Aboriginal people and European settlers due to the nature of how European settlers um, have obtained uh, the land that they have today. And one of the things, Bo, that I've I've been researching at the moment is your podcasts, mm-hmm. uh, which, which have been documenting a lot of the stories that have happened, and that's about truth-telling about a yeah. side of Australia that has, has been left out of the history books. Can you talk about that? Definitely, for sure. So as I was just mentioning, you know, uh, sort of defining or describing what uh, the Frontier Wars is. Um, and as you mentioned before, you know, uh, many many of children of Australia have been sort of robbed of this history. And uh, that's this history that we're talking about, the Frontier Wars, uh, that consists of massacres, battles, uh, triumphs on behalf of Aboriginal people. I'm just at the park with kids and uh, there's, a, there's a little airstrip across the road so you'll hear planes flying over, sorry. That's okay. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's sort of... It's been defined um, as conflicts between Aboriginal people which consisted of uh, battles, massacres uh, uh, on all fronts um, from Aboriginal people using traditional weapons to Aboriginal people eventually using guns and horses uh, to participate uh, in these different things. Um, yeah, so I, it's just been over a year that the podcast has been going as well. And can you actually give listeners the link so that they can go in and listen for themselves? Definitely, for sure. For sure. So, uh, the, the, well, the easiest way is for the listeners to Google uh, Frontier War Stories, Frontier War Stories, um, and then the first sort of link to come up should be uh, Frontier War Stories, um, and it should be a link to the streaming platform that I hosted on, the hosting site, which is called Podbean. Um, and through Podbean, people can join and become patrons and if they enjoy the program or want more, they can uh, donate as much or as little as they like. Um, or you can also listen to it via Spotify, Apple Podcasts. One second. Um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other streaming uh, platforms that host uh, podcasts as well. Um, so, the, the, yeah, they're the streaming platforms um, that I've been using uh, over the last year and a bit. Can you talk about some of your favourite warriors and, and discuss um, some of the historical things that happened? Uh, definitely, definitely. Um, and, and, you know, like, I, I guess I, I wouldn't tend to sort of play... Like Not favourite, but particular but you know what I mean. Yeah. Like warriors yeah. that have, they're all good, they're all amazing. But, but warriors that have particularly that you've related to particularly. 
for sure, for sure. So, um, you know, obviously there's the one that stands out um, in Australian history, which is Pemway. He, he was sort of seen as one of the first sort of uh, Aboriginal resistance leaders um, in the early British colony in, in Sydney. Uh, he, he participated in over a 10-year to 12-year resistance against sort of the British invasion of of, of sort of the wider um, Sydney area and surrounding area. Um, he was sort of known as the Rainbow Warrior because um, I believe he sort of represented uh, and sort of uh, had, you know, like the OK from other nations sort of for him to lead them into battle. Um, he was very fierce. Um, uh, he was obviously feared by European soldiers and settlers. Um, and then and also he was feared by other Aboriginal people as well uh, because of his uh, reputation as well. Uh, where I live in Brisbane, uh, there's a Dundalee. Uh, Dundalee, he is a gabba 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 man uh, from the Sunshine Coast. Sort of the same thing. Uh, his reputation sort of precedes him. So, one, he is respected and feared by uh, his peers, being Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal. Um, and he held uh, a 10-year resistance here uh, in Brisbane. The thing about him was he was hung, he was the last publicly hung person in, in at the gallows in uh, in Brisbane or the, sort of the furthest colony from Sydney. So at the time, I believe Brisbane was still a part of the New South Wales colony. Um, and where, you know, the ironic thing is where he was hung and where many people were hung um, at the gallows, across from that uh, is Anzac Square. So, you know, they have the eternal flame. They also have... Um, you know, monuments and statues and plaques to to commemorate the the, the, the first sort of uh, soldiers who fought um, in who participated in wars um, with Australia against sort of other nations. Um, it's ironic. And then you know, on the other side, you know, <clears throat> of that <clears throat> every year on the fifth of January, we gather <clears throat> to pay respects to Dunderling. Um, uh, we light a fire. The last couple of years, the, the Brisbane City Council sort of got behind. Uh, what, what the community have been doing, and they sort of put a plaque together and uh, they put it out. Obviously, it's not anything like um, the plaques or the statues that they have of these like European settlers or of um, um, these uh, soldiers uh, who they who they honour as well. Um, you know, and as I mentioned, they have an eternal flame. We just light a fire, you know, for an hour or two. Uh, you know, and then the fire out as we leave. Um, yeah, you know, there's obviously in Victoria, two sort of significant figures. There's uh, Tanaminaway and Mulbahina. They held a, a seven, seven, or seven to ten week resistance. Um, they were from, they're, they're Tasmanian Aboriginal people. Um, they were brought up with uh, I believe it was ten, uh, ten to fifteen Aboriginal people from Victoria because one of the reasons why they brought them up is because the Black Wars have just finished in Tasmania. Um, and they were sort of brought up as to see, as to show European settlers and also Aboriginal people that we can pacify you or we can pacify the Black. Um, so they brought them up. And out of that 10 to 15, five of them, Mulbahina, Tanaminaway, I believe, um, Truganini and two other Aboriginal women, uh, they uh, terrorised sort of greater, 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 greater Melbourne. Uh, for, for for seven to ten weeks as well. I did that interview with uh, Joe Testano. He, um, uh, he he's from Victoria, or he's based down there, originally from 
of Queensland here uh, from Brisbane. Um, he he lives in Victoria. He, he lives in Victoria, but based yeah. based in Victoria, sorry, from Queensland. Yeah. Um, um, what else is there? You know, there's many stories. Um, uh, a really interesting uh, uh, figure for me would be, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, um, uh, Wally Ash, she's an Aboriginal woman uh, from Tasmania. Same thing, she held a resistance for almost a decade. Um, but her story is she was sold as a sex slave to sealers and whalers uh, by other Aboriginal people uh, to these European uh, men. Uh, and while she was there, she, was, she learned English and she learned how to fire muskets. Uh, uh, and so once she was comfortable, or sort of, you know, once she sort of knew what she was doing, uh, she escaped, went back to her people, started a band of warriors, uh, and consisted to uh, with her band of warriors to terrorise parts of Tasmania. Um, and what year was um, that? That was uh, one second. Um, I believe that was the eighteen. 18- it would be around the 1830s, yeah. earlier, yeah, yeah. Um, because the Tasmanian Wars are sort of these conflicts that happened over a 30-year period uh, down that way. Uh, sorry. Um, it's very, very significant, <clears throat> um, also to myself, anyways, because in terms of what she did. And she also represents this sort of history of, of Aboriginal women in this period of time who we tend to not hear about a lot. Um and I want to take it upon myself to sort of uh, figure out and find uh, more Aboriginal women who are led uh, and participate in frontier violence. I know, um, and I'm sure, the Aboriginal women participated in, in, in frontier conflict as well to honour you know, uh, their, their loved ones and their family members who were murdered and massacred. Um, yeah, so eventually I'm going to uh, print like a, just a brief article of some stories and some individual Aboriginal women who participate in frontier conflict, um, which, which, which I'm looking forward to doing as well. I've, I've found a couple of things. Um, and then also I want to have a sort of my on frontier war stories about it as well. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, that's sort of... That, that's something that I want to take upon myself to sort of look at and research as well is um, how significant, you know, how important... Because we all know how important Aboriginal women are. Very but, important. You know, like, like, like society... Uh, is and has played out, you know, they tend to write out, you know, the actions of the triumphs of women and they, you know, um, they sort of, you know, tend to put a male face or a white face over sort of these actions um, and, and you know, that's how history uh, has been, you know, or they just sort of wipe that history out and, <clears throat> or, they just, or they just don't tend to tell it. You know, so like a lot of the history that I'm talking about is recorded by explorers or by or by uh, the the newspapers of the day, and they're from letters of, of, of the of European people who have uh, written to their families back in England, have written to you know sergeants or you know, the government to say, hey, you know these individuals are, are continuing to carry out these massacres or sorry, carry out these um these raids on yeah. my property, that burn on my crops and all those other things like. Well, it's <clears> an eye. It's for not an eye for an eye, right? Well, definitely, oh, I wouldn't necessarily call it an eye for an eye. It was more so, you know, um, an eye for 10 eyes or 20 eyes or, you know what I mean? Like What, what I mean, see, yeah, what, sorry, sorry, bro, what, what I mean to say is it's it's not about revenge, but, oh, no, 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 no. but it's yeah, more yeah, no, what, I, what I'm trying, you understand what I'm saying? It's it's yeah, no, that, I get what you're saying, sorry, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, that yeah. you're actually, 
they're perpetua- they're perpetrators, right? So they're only exactly, they're only yeah. acting the way the perpetrators are acting, and they're they're fighting and in relation to yeah how they're acting, definitely you know, and a lot of the because a lot of people I'm speaking to on the podcast are historians, <clears throat> you know, who have who are, who have trolled through these archives, you know, um, um, who have done the hard yards of years looking at you know uh, these archives, these these books, these journals, these, yeah. these letters, these, you know, all these different things. Um, and they sort of come up with, you know, this, this hidden history uh, that tells us the actual correct history of, of what happened or how it played out, um, um, you know, on this continent. You know, one of the things that you can do and really track with this history is um, that uh, Aboriginal people and maskers weren't really um, recorded, you know, like the, the, the death toll. You know, and in these instances, <clears throat> some of the times when you find out about massacres happening, it'll be because of yeah. you know, some of the soldiers, the settlers that were, that were drunk, and they were boastfully telling, you know, other people, you know, sometimes drunk soldiers, telling, you know, uh, uh, women, or you know, uh, you have um, a report where one or two or three officers had died in relation to, you know, uh, defending their lives against a, a, a large group of aggressive, dangerous, you know, natives or whatever, savages or, you know, whatever they you know, want to call us. But, um, yeah, well, it was hardly recorded. Um, <clears throat> and thankfully, you know, we have people like uh, Lindley Wallace who was tracking Native Mountain Police in Queensland in their camps. And, you know, we, or, or we have people like um, uh, Lyndall Ryan who was, you know, uh, recording the massive sites and the maps and, and how many people with her... With a, with a massacre map, um, you know, like, these are the people who are doing the hard work. I'm essentially just, you know, pressing record and asking some questions, uh, just sort of capturing what they're doing. Another interesting part that I find amazing, and I want to sort of do my own, some more research into it, is um, nearly lots, lots of the research I've spoken to, they continue to say that uh, for a period of time there was, you know, like, coexistence. You know, Aboriginal um, people did everything that they could in their power to to not have conflict. You know, that would give them parcels yeah. of land. You know, you know, they'd bring them into the into the tribe. You know, like you know, be a part of the part of the tribe. You know, um, you know, they'll, they'll do so much. And then, you know, as as history has played out, you know, conflict was started due to uh, settlers, you know, o- occupying and stealing more land. Killing Aboriginal people, killing Aboriginal babies or Aboriginal women, you know, poisoning Aboriginal people, carrying out these horrendous, disgusting acts um, in in the eyes of sort of uh, of our, sometimes Aboriginal people or, or in the eyes of their peers, and and what we see, um, yeah, is is this sort of horrendous history that uh, I think what places, I what, what I, yeah. I I think it's really fantastic that you're talking about all this and I, I suppose in listening to you what I'm what I'm saying here is that um, it's it's important that people understand yeah. that it's not about the revenge side of it it's about no, the no. fact that it's resistance it, they're warriors it is it is it is, it is, yeah. it is, it is definitely it's, it's you know if somebody went into your house and yeah. you know stole something of yours and you know who you was you would you know you know it was very significant You'd want to get that thing back, you know. You'd approach this person, you'd ask them, or you'd or you'd go to 
any means to sort of get that back that you would if you didn't want to get the cops involved. <clears throat> um, you know, um, Aboriginal people did everything they, they could. And this is sort of something that I want to look at because I believe, like, Aboriginal governance or um, and sort of Aboriginal... I don't know if it's a word, like, relationality, like the yeah. relationships that Aboriginal people have uh, with, with ourselves, with the country, and then also with... Um, um, with settlers as well is really, really important. Um, and that, that's something that I really want to sort of delve into in the podcast as well. I've, I've, there's a few sort of academics, Aboriginal academics, who sort of are in this area and sort of Aboriginal people that I want to uh, speak to uh, that are in this area. So uh, each as well epi- as sort of look at governance. Sorry? Yeah. So each episode that you, you speak with different Aboriginal and non Aboriginal people about research mm-hmm. books and oral histories. Mm. So, Bo, we're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. We're going to be speaking with um, Josephine about refugees next. She's a lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre. Um, but just really quickly before we go, though, can you just talk mm-hmm. about what um, about Mile Creek? Because the yeah, anniversary is coming up in June, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, Mile Creek is a very significant sort of uh, site, massacre site uh, and event because it's the only time European settlers or Australian settlers uh, yeah, European settlers uh, were convicted, uh, guilty, found guilty, had a conviction, found guilty, and then uh, uh, prosecuted and, and hung uh, for uh, their involvement in, in a massacre. But you can't mention Mile um, Creek without mentioning Mile yeah. Creek, which happened January uh, 1839. Uh, it was <clears throat> a punitive expedition uh, by Major Nunn over a, uh, a period of, of several months. And what happened uh, was they were tracking a band of Aboriginal uh, Gumari warriors, I believe it was. And what happened was they couldn't. <clears throat> um, uh, they eventually found them uh, by a creek and by water, uh, and pursued to sort of massacre uh, a whole lot of Aboriginal people. Now the thing about uh, Waterloo Creek is the numbers vary from a handful, it's like five or six to ten, twenty to thirty to fifty, and then up to a hundred. Um, you know, and, and, and some of these numbers have been recorded by um, some of the people who are the perpetrators, uh, like Manger Nunn, and the way that they sort of mention these massacres is by sort of boastfully telling, you know, women while on a sort of drinking spree or while boasting to sort of other settlers, and this is sort of how these things got recorded. Uh, one of the reasons why this is sort of important to mention the Mile Creek because some of the individuals, like partialists who participated, in this massacre, they were armed to the teeth. They were taught how to sort of track, how to set up sort of, you know, massacres and, and all these other things. Um, and it, you know, they, 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 they trained, they armed settlers. And so what happened was in this case, they, 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 they armed settlers to their teeth, uh, gave them horses, and uh, they, they carried out this massacre. And I believe some of the men involved in that were also involved in Woodloo, uh, sorry, in Mile Creek as well. And the thing to mention, if there's multiple massacres in one area or close by, it's usually done and perpetrated by the same people. Um, yeah. Yeah. Bo, thank you so much for coming onto the program. And what date is that? Because there's usually a memorial, isn't there, every year? Yeah, That's in yeah, June, isn't it? In June, yes. Yeah. Well, the good thing about it is because of COVID last year, there's lots of memorial sites around the country that uh, didn't uh, get the... Uh, do theirs physically, but all went virtual. So in June, and then 
So there's a date in the Darling Downs area here in Queensland. It's Woomba. Uh, and that's to commemorate uh, one of the first uh, uh, one of the first losses that uh, the Queensland or New, the, the, one of the, the, the New South Wales colonies took uh, in relation to Aboriginal uh, resistance. That's uh, Multugger and the Battle of One Tree Hill. Uh, that, that's an episode of, of Frontier War Stories. That, 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 that comes up in November, I believe it is. So that's great. To to that as well. I mean, it's not great about the massacres, but it's great that you're actually doing all these podcasts. Bo, thank you so much for coming onto the program, and we'll talk more about the date um, of Mile Creek. Um, very definitely. soon. I'm hoping you can come, come back as a regular guest. I hope you enjoyed sure, definitely. Um, the interview. No, it was great. It was great. Thank you. And, and, and I hope your listeners enjoyed it. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they'll learn a lot. Thanks so much, Bo, and we'll talk soon. Definitely. Thanks, Matt. Bye. Bye. And that was Bo Spearham, um, First Nations radio host and podcaster, speaking about the Frontier War, the wars, the Frontier Wars. And next up, we're going to be speaking with senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, um, Josephine Langbean. I'm just going to go into a quick announcement. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. And you're back with the Doing Time show and we're going to be speaking about a very, very important topic here. The Australian government has engaged in a strategic, deliberate and coercive campaign to separate refugees from their families and prevent them from reuniting in Australia. And the Human Rights Law Centre has written a new report and we're going to be speaking with senior lawyer from the Human Rights Law Centre, um, Josephine Langbean, about this report. And it's basically a landmark multidisciplinary report that exposes the Australian government's deliberate use of family separation to punish and deter refugees seeking safety in Australia. Hello, Josephine. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Ressa. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to have you and thank you for your patience. Now, I'm wondering if you could just talk about... um, You're a senior lawyer, obviously, at the Human Rights Law Centre, but could you talk about the report and how um, the centre made that decision to actually write it and a bit about the background. Absolutely. Um, Now, I think you summed up the report really well. Um, It it is uh, intended to uh, really expose the way the Australian government is intentionally keeping refugees away from their families. Um, I think during the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, we all experienced how hard it can be to be separated from our loved ones. Yeah. Uh, and that separation is really painful. But for thousands of people in Australia who are refugees, that's been their reality uh, for years. 
And so the intention of this report is really to tell the stories of the families who have been living with this reality, um, people who have been uh, living in the Australian in the Australian community for years but have no prospect of reuniting with their loved ones. Uh, and so the report um, really draws on um, those stories of the families themselves but also expert medical and legal analysis uh, to show that that kind of this kind of separation, um, that the kind of policies that the Australian government um, is implementing, are not only wrong, but they are really harmful to the health and mental health of the people who are uh, experiencing them, and they're also illegal under international law. Indeed, it is illegal, and it's still happening. Why is that? Mm, that is an excellent question. Um, you know, this, these policies have been going on for uh, a really long time, but I think part of the issue is that um, many Australians are simply unaware that this is happening. You know, when uh, Donald Trump was, was tearing children from their families at the US-Mexico border, there was international outcry. But the Australian government has managed to get away with uh, perpetrating this kind of um, harm on a systematic scale for years. Um you know, these, these policies are in contravention of a number of international human rights treaties and those are agreements that the Australian government has uh, voluntarily signed up to and agreed to be part of and to, to protect and defend those human rights standards but is now acting in contravention of those, um, of those human rights treaties. So the report is called Together in Safety and I've been reading... The report is very disturbing and there's a lot of really tragic stories. Mm. Could you just talk about some of those? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the families that um, that we worked with uh, to prepare this report uh, were incredibly um, courageous and generous in sharing their stories with us. But we're, we're talking about, um, you know, mothers who... Uh, are having to explain to their young child why um, why her father and her siblings uh, can't be with them in Australia because they're still stuck in a refugee camp overseas. And uh, we, we also heard from a man who had to endure uh, years of detention on Manus Island while the rest of his family managed to um, resettle in Australia and, and rebuild their lives. But he couldn't be there with them simply because he arrived in Australia on a different date to him, uh, to the rest of his family. So a different policy applied to him. And, um, you know, we heard a really tragic story about a father who is, is just so desperate to bring his children to safety in Australia now after their mother really devastatingly passed away while she was waiting for a visa to Australia. But um, all of these people are separated by different um, laws and policies uh, that are designed to keep people away from their families. But the the end result um, for all of these families uh, is the same. You know, people are left with this really unthinkable choice between uh, their safety or, or being with the people they love. So the report finds that the Australian government has used three main methods to keep families apart. Can you talk about those? Um, 
Yeah, so there's a range of laws and policies that are used to, um, to, to shut refugees out of family reunion pathways. Um, the, the first is, is people who are on temporary protection visas are completely ineligible to even apply to bring their family members to Australia. Um, and then secondly, people who are eligible to apply, so people who have um, yeah. permanent protection visas, um, if they arrive by boat in Australia, they they are constantly sent to the back of the visa processing queue. So, in effect, their family visa applications are just never considered because new applications are lodged all the time. So there's the complete barring of, of any form of application for some people. There's the constant deprioritisation of applications for other people. And then in our offshore detention centres too, we've seen people who've been separated from family members who were already settled in Australia, or we've seen people who are forced to leave loved ones behind in Nauru or Papua New Guinea during ur urgent medical evacuations to Australia. It's it's absolutely appalling to to hear that, given that prior to the Liberal government coming coming in, although Labor might have had something to do with this too, probably happens on both sides of politics, that there was a, a boat policy um, that was created, wasn't it? Because th this didn't happen during the Howard Howard regime, did it? Where um, people coming on boats were, were discriminated against like this. That shouldn't be allowed. You, you're right. A lot of this, um, a lot of these policies are really rooted in the in the really toxic rhetoric that has developed around um, people who travel by boat, sort of over the last decade, really. Um, and so that's essentially why these policies exist. They're targeted um, at to punish people for how and when they arrived in Australia and to try and deter other people from seeking protection here. And, you know, that, um, that deterrence aim is, is how the government justifies these policies, regardless of the fact that we're talking about people who have been part of our community for years and years, who arrived before these policies were even introduced. Um, and I mean, in our view, it's just it's never justifiable to use the the love that a family um, that family members have for each other um, as, as a form of punishment. Yeah, and of particular concern, and I'm just having a look at the media release here, is that it's separation by endless deprioritisation, as you said, of certain family reunion applications, and that effectively denies permanent residents who arrive by boat the prospect of ever being approved to reunite with their family in Australia. Is that right? Mm, that's right. So there's a particular government policy. It's called uh, Ministerial Direction 80, um, which is a rule that the government um, has made for um, the Department of Home Affairs when they're processing visa applications. And it says um, you have to decide visa applications in a certain order of priority. And if you are a person who arrived by boat and you want to bring your family members here, you are forever at the back of that visa processing queue. Uh, and so because every year there are more people applying to bring uh, their family members to Australia than there are uh, visas available, 
it means that those applications are just never processed. So we're working with people who have been waiting seven years and counting for their partner or child visas to be approved. And, and that's from the time that that, that that policy was introduced. And there's just no end in sight for these people. There are um, There is an exception to this policy um, if... People can make out uh, what are described as uh, compelling and compassionate circumstances. Uh, there, there is supposedly um, an exemption to, to, to being put at the back of the queue, but that test is so broad and vague and the kind of circumstances that people are required to demonstrate um, to be awarded that exemption are, for many people, have just been impossible to achieve. And so people are just waiting uh, indefinitely. So in Together in Safety, five refugee families who have been deliberately kept apart um, tell their story. So I'm wondering, could you, would you mind, Josephine, giving us the link for the report? For the report? Yes, absolutely. Um, so people can, can head to um, the Human Rights Law Centre's uh, website at hlc.org.au and the report is there on the homepage. Um, you can download that report and read the, the stories um, that these families have told in their own words. And um, as you mentioned, these are, these are five families who have experienced years of separation um, for, for different, uh, through different uh, methods, uh, some because of offshore detention, some because of um, temporary protection visas, uh, some because they are endlessly deprioritised um, under Ministerial Direction 80. Uh, and those families uh, describe the, the impact that that's had on their lives and the things that they have missed out on, you know, those, those everyday um, moments that make being with your family so important, you know, watching your kids grow up, seeing their, their first steps and hearing their first words or or being a, a parent trying to trying to raise teenagers and guide them through life. So these are the sorts of things that um, that these families are missing out on. And it's interesting, I, I really liked the way you, you made the analogy with the COVID-19 last year um, and how people were separated from their loved ones during COVID-19, you know, the lockdown. Mm. Except that this is actually not lockdown, this is far worse, isn't it? Well, it, exactly. And, you know, it's... It's, I think it's hard for everyone to to not be able to to be with their loved ones and people. You know, we've all missed out on some really important things. You know, special um, family occasions or, or looking after loved ones who are sick. You know, these are all awful things to have to miss. But for people who are impacted by these policies, the pandemic was really just another hurdle in what has already been years of just not knowing when they'll be able to share another birthday or, um, or you know, even unfortunately sometimes um, being able to grieve the, the loss of a, of a family member with their other loved ones. And thank you for that. And a lot of the also listeners also need to understand, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that the Together in Safety report details the views of internationally renowned barristers, don't, doesn't it, and medical professionals. Can you talk about that? Yes, absolutely. So um, the report includes some expert analysis from doctors who have worked with uh, children and families 
um, people who are refugees and people who have been separated from their loved ones by the government policies. And these doctors describe the kinds of um, impacts that that can have on both children and adults in terms of their mental health and their long-term well-being and, in the case of kids, their, their development. Uh, and those doctors found that, that this sort of harm has, uh, has a really uh, a lifelong impact on people. And the barristers that we spoke to analysed these policies and that kind of harm against international human rights standards and found that the Australian government's policies are in breach of things like the right to um, the right to have a family and the right to family life, the rights of the child. Um, but also, because of that harm to some families is so serious and long-lasting, it can, in some circumstances, reach the threshold of the sort of pain and suffering that we talk about when we talk about torture. And the fact that these policies are... Uh, being implemented for uh, punitive um, reasons and because they're being carried out by the government. Those elements combined mean that in some cases the Australian government may be in um, breach of the Convention Against Torture. It's definitely illegal under international law and unfortunately, you know, this separation of refugee families is, is intentional. That's right, and and the government is is completely upfront about that. Um, they've acknowledged several times that that these policies are designed to disincentivise um, people coming to Australia to seek protection by boat. So they are these are targeted, uh, intentional policies um, that that are designed to punish people and are and are also definitely. Ex- experienced as punitive by the people who are subject to them. Josephine, I was particularly moved um, by an incident that was talked about in the report and and I believe I also recorded uh, a rally about this when he first passed away and that was Farsal Imak, Uh, I think. Mm -hmm. What a dreadful thing. A Sardinese refugee dies from head injuries he suffered during a seizure, despite asking for medical help for his chest pains mm. and frequent seizures more than 20 times in the previous six months. Mm. And I suppose what I wanted to ask you is, how could that happen? And it's so important to actually document some of the medical atrocities and violation of human rights that have happened in not only at Manus Island and Nauru, but in detention centres across Australia. Absolutely. Um, And I think we've seen a really devastating amount of evidence uh, coming out from um, our offshore detention centres in recent years that really exposed the medical crisis um, that that was and is occurring there. Now, um, you spoke about uh, an incident that is referred to in, a, in the foreword to our report, um, which Beirut Buchani um, contributed to the report, and he describes his friend, um, Faisal, who passed away in the circumstances that you described, and, and he left behind a letter um, addressed to a friend who was also on Manus Island, and in that letter... 
Faisal asked his friend to do everything in his power to help um, rescue his children from uh, the refugee camps at Sudan's border um, if he were to pass away. Uh, and so, you know, the people who suffered through um, Australia's offshore um, processing regime, you know, that, that is um, torturous enough in itself. And then for people who have the added um, distress of knowing that their family members remain behind in incredibly dangerous situations and they're powerless to to help them and look after them, including their own children. Um, you know, that is just... Um, it, it, it's hard to fathom. It's systemic racism and systemic abuse. And what this really highlights here, correct me if I'm wrong is that this system deprives ill refugees of access to basic medical care in order to pressure them into returning to where they fled from. And I quote directly from the report, Together in Safety. Yes. So one of the, one of the practices that we uh, did see uh, the Australian government implementing was... Um, you know, when when people were on uh, Nauru or Manus Island, and the conditions of their detention had led to a deterioration in their health to the point that they needed urgent evacuation to Australia because um, there simply weren't the facilities to provide the care that they needed in those places. Um, people were prevented from bringing their um, their family members with them, so a number of women who um, fell pregnant on Nauru and needed to be uh, transferred to Australia to give birth were actually not allowed to bring their partners with them. And so those women then uh, came to Australia and had to give birth alone and spent years raising their children um, without any family support uh, in, in a new place. And, and you know, then the, the fathers of these children um, didn't manage to meet their babies for years. And part of the reason for this, um, and the government acknowledged this at the time, was that um, they thought that if, that if the whole um, family unit was not in Australia, then people would be um, more inclined to return to um, offshore detention locations um, after the birth. And so in that way, we see family separation being used as a way to pressure and coerce people into um, into to doing what the government wants them to do. And, of course, we can't forget the Tamil family in all this. Absolutely. Uh, I think um, the family from Biloela who are uh, held on Christmas Island are such a um, such a clear example of the kind of um, unnecessary cruelty that the government is capable of uh, in the name of these um, these policies of deterrence. Um, but I think what the what the Biloela family also shows us is that when the Australian government is uh, sorry, when the Australian public rather is aware of what's going on yeah. and they can see a face and a name and the impact on a family, people people don't support it. People don't understand why it's happening. They don't agree with these kinds of um, extreme um, punishments. And I think that's um, what we're really hoping the Together in Safety report can do is to um, 
is to show the Australian public uh, the families who are impacted by these these policies of of separation, um, to, to to put a human face on those those stories and help people um, understand that that this sort of cruelty is completely unnecessary and completely unacceptable. And so, of course, we need to uphold our democratic right to protest in the streets and also people who don't wish to protest um, need to write letters to their, their politicians. Absolutely. And, you know, we would um, we'd really encourage people to, to read the Together in Safety report and to listen to the first-hand testimony from the families who are impacted. And um, as I said, you can head to the Human Rights Law Centre website to, um, to read about other ways that you can take action as well. Josephine, thank you so much for coming onto the program. You've given a really detailed analysis of the report and it's it's a very, very useful tool that the Human Rights Law Centre has um, implemented. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. And that was Joseph, Josephine Lambine, who is the senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre. And the Human Rights Law Centre has has done a lot of work in regards to many, many campaigns and this report is just one of them. It's approximately 4.49 and I'm going to be playing a song now called We Have Survived by No Fixed Address.
We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6pm Tuesdays. And we're just nearing the end of our show. This is the Doing Time show. It's approximately 4.54. And we've got we've got um, a climate change show up next. I have to find out the name of it. Um, anyway, it, we're nearing the end of our show. Thank you to Bo for coming on and also to Josephine from the Human Rights Law Centre. And we're hoping to bring you some more coverage next week. Not too much to say right now because there's very little information, but I was watching NITV last night and I believe there's been a couple more deaths in custody. So we'll be bringing you um, coverage about that in the upcoming weeks and of course Radiothon is coming up as well um, for the station Um, and our show is actually on the 14th of June so we will need donations um, for that. Our target is $850 so um, donate to all shows at 3CR. And it's goodbye from Marissa and we'll be going out with our theme song Black Fella, White Fella by the Rumpy Band and stay tuned every Monday for the Do and Time show from 4 to 5 p.m. Take care of each other and stay safe.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.